mean, I think I can't go home for a long time. I'm glad I was home over the holidays. I, I was back in the UK for immigration reasons for four months last year, and I'm very mm. glad I'm here. And, you know, there's a little part of me that wishes I was in China right now, where at least would be over the first wave of this. But, yeah, yeah there's no, no good options, really. Hello and welcome to Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's podcast on all things coronavirus. I'm Amy McKinnon, a staff writer with Foreign Policy. And I'm James Palmer, Foreign Policy's senior editor. We're still podcasting from home, but now with new and improved sound gear. So hopefully you almost can't tell that I'm speaking to you from my cosy walk-in closet. On today's podcast, we're going to be looking at the issue of partisanship. Yep, just like seemingly everything else in American life right now, there is a stark divide on how you view the threat of coronavirus depending on how you vote. A new NBC Wall Street Journal poll released on Sunday found that almost 70% of Democrats are worried that a family member might contract the virus. When asked the same question, just 40% of Republicans said they shared that worry. And I just find this so troubling because if there's one time in living memory when we need Americans to come together on an issue, it's now. Because how we all act as individuals is collectively going to determine how many people get the coronavirus and ultimately how many people are going to die. Across the country, events are being closed, schools are being closed, people are being encouraged to work from home and practice what's known as social distancing. That is, as much as you possibly can, limiting your your FaceTime, your time in large crowds, your time with people outside of your immediate family or roommates. But that same poll found a partisan divide even on that, with 60% of Democrats saying they were going to stop going to large public events, but just 30% of Republicans said the same. I mean, James, what's your view of what's going on here? I think it comes back to the president, unfortunately. I Mm. think that normally in these times, Americans would look to the president to fulfill his symbolic role, not his political role. So America is unusual, I think, in having a head of state and a head of government who are unified in one figure. So whereas in the UK, you know, you have the sense that the queen represents a continuity and a symbolic nature of the government, Mm -hmm. or in other countries, presidents who fulfill that role, like the president of Ireland, is not a hugely political figure, for instance. But in America, these two are wrapped into one. And normally, presidents have been able to step aside from that political role and take on that symbolic role in times of crisis. So you think of, for instance, George W. Bush during um, 9-11. There was a real sense of unity, which was then, of course, perverted in order to launch a futile war in Iraq. But let's skip over that for the moment. Or FDR or even somebody like LBJ after the Kennedy assassination, this ability to present a unifying figure. And Trump is literally incapable of doing that. And not only has he downplayed the virus from the beginning, and those false statements, which he's still making, are being amplified through Fox News, through other uh, effectively propaganda news networks to hundreds of millions of people, but he's completely failed in his role as a unifying leader. It's all about him. It's all attacks on his opponents. And I think that's going to cause immense harm and is causing immense harm. But I don't want to give Democrats a full pass here either, because per that NBC Wall Street Journal poll, it still looks like 39% of Democrats are still planning to go out to large public gatherings. And 
I'm kind of speechless. Um, I mean, just look what's happening in northern Italy. That's the economic powerhouse of one of the world's largest economies, and they are overwhelmed. And Italy has more hospital beds per capita than the United States. So if it can happen in Italy, it can happen here. But James, why is that message just not sinking in for people? I think that there's still this belief that America is somehow magically shielded from this, that there's a difference Mm -hmm. between, you know, abroad, where the news happens to people, and America, where the news is something that you watch on TV. And until we start seeing those numbers pile up in America, this just isn't going to make an impact. Until we start seeing images of crowded hospitals, of people dying in the corridors, many Americans are not going to think of this as real. Mm. Until people know somebody who's a victim of the coronavirus, they won't think of it as something that can happen to them. And that goes across parties. And of course, we've seen some Republicans take the lead on this. The uh, governor of Ohio has just announced the closure of all bars and restaurants, Mm. for instance. But one of the problems too, as well as the complete lack of leadership from the center, is that America is just very poorly set up to take the kind of sweeping measures that European countries can. Um, quarantine powers, shutdowns of business and so on really have to be done at the, the yeah. local level by the state or by the city. And so it takes longer for that to filter through the system. You know, Amy, one of the remarkable things has been that previous Republican administrations have often been very strong on pandemics and infection and global disease. It was one of the really mm. great achievements of the Bush administration. I think even critics of the Bush administration would often say that their work on AIDS, on malaria, on other global diseases was really first rate. And it was something that senior Republican leaders, including the president, were very personally committed to, partially building out of that tradition of sort of medical missionary work that feeds into American uh, religious conservatism. And I talked earlier over Skype to Michael Miller, who was part of that Bush administration effort, and who's also in self-quarantine at the moment after being exposed to the virus here in DC. So Michael, you worked on critical health initiatives during the Bush administration. What do you think went wrong here? How can we fix it? I think there are really two challenges we see in government now with uh, the coronavirus and with global health security more broadly. And that is a challenge of policy and a challenge of architecture. And the challenge of policy really involves a divide between international and domestic that is practical and normal in most cases, but in the case of global health security is a real problem. That's because global health security, it's it's somewhat unique in that if you make a distinction between the health security of another country and health security of our own, you do it at your own peril. And we saw that very much with the Ebola outbreak in West Africa in 2014, which really was much less of a threat than the COVID-19 is now, uh, simply because it was much harder to transmit. But people really got a sense that, goodness, you know, what happens in Sierra Leone, the weaknesses in their health system matter here. And it really brought it to the fore. And our policies have not totally learned that lesson. And the structures of government in Congress and the administration, where it's divided between international and domestic, is an enormous challenge that domestic and global health security are really one and the same. And what that requires is those weak health systems in other parts of the world, ones that cannot meet their basic obligation 
to surveil for mm -hmm. outbreaks, report outbreaks, and respond to outbreaks. Everyone's obligations under the international health regulations of 2005 that we've signed up for and they've all signed up for, people can't meet, uh, countries can't meet that. But the fact is, it is very much in our interest to address those. Those programs in USAID are sometimes treated by policymakers as foreign aid. They become very low priority. They're put in competition against other foreign assistance. And people have to understand, USA doesn't seem like a domestic health security agency, but in fact it is. And we can demonstrate over and over that it is. Is the U.S. living up to its own health obligations? It, 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 there are clearly some mistakes and some poor judgment. My family and I are a perfect case in point where we should have been tested a week ago. We should have been tested as soon as we understood that we had been exposed to someone. And in fact, he should have been tested as soon as that was a possibility for him is when he entered the health system. And that didn't happen. That's because there's a shortage of tests that you don't see in South Korea. They were testing 10,000 people a day and they were doing it right. And they're, try they're able to potentially get ahead of that. That's not because our policy didn't understand that and we didn't have the resources. I think that was from other mistakes that people are gonna have to, I think, do a post-mortem on later. But it is a huge problem because what it means is if you don't know who is a carrier or who is infected and should be quarantined or isolated, then you have to take drastic measures. And there's going to be economic costs. There's going to be a trust in government cost. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be a public health organizational cost to that, that if you had widespread testing, it is rolling out now. My children have now been tested. I'm consistently told that I don't really qualify, <laughs> um, despite being quarantined and despite having uh, what we think now is probably just a chest cold unrelated to this. But, you know, two days ago, I didn't know that was just a chest cold. Why do you think that Americans have been so slow to respond to the virus? Um, I think because it's not one catastrophic event, um, there's probably a perception problem. People don't understand that how geography has really been overcome. And I think there's a lack of appreciation of shared vulnerability that is perhaps resisted some more among conservatives, where we don't like this. We, we I say we as a conservative Republican, but there's a resistance to the idea that, gosh, we're all in this together, because that is perhaps in people's minds, overused by people to justify things that really don't make sense for our national interest. And I appreciate that. Gosh, we're all in this together, so we need to <laughs> we need to break down the capitalist system. We need to do all these different things. Like there's, I think, a sort of instinctive mistrust of that. But once in a while, it's actually quite true. <laughs> and their shared vulnerability, I think um, you know, the ideological blinder is gonna have to come down on that. There's also a challenge in perception of public goods. And our system is not really geared towards pursuing public goods or even embracing them as a, as a need, right? Because a lot of times they go against, they're not responded to by the, if you will, the normal commercial market. Mm -hmm. I touch on, I touch on this a bit in my piece, which really is, you know, the places where the greatest need is cannot drive demand. And what that means is, in something like diseases for the poor world, even endemic diseases like malaria, 
there's really no market for things where only poor people have it. And I think people have been trained now in this uh, terrible political environment to be trained to believe that this information is being manipulated for political purposes. So they see that, you know, that perhaps the skeptical Republicans and people where I grew up in East Tennessee who don't trust us look at this and say, you know what, they're trying to make this into Trump's Katrina. So I'm going to write it all off, right? Because I know it's being just manipulated for partisan reasons. And that's a real danger. You know, public fear is a very powerful political tool. And it must be very tempting for politicians to use it, especially in a heightened partisan environment like this. Mm -hmm. And that's where even good public officials and public servants are trying to back the whole dialogue down from that. The whole system is not helping them, right? There's just a downgrading of the politics that makes, I think, the conversation around public health threats that may never be observed or, or, you know, you can't prove what didn't happen, especially dangerous. There's also, I think, a poor buy-in to the idea of public health, that people don't take it seriously if it's not a risk to them. That was Michael Miller speaking over Skype, a former Republican government official on public health. So before we go, we've had an extremely important question sent in from some extremely important listeners. This is Rachel. I'm age 12 and I'm living in Maryland. And this is Chloe. That's my sister. I'm age 9 and I'm also living in Maryland. And we have a question for Amy and James. Can pets get the coronavirus? And if they lick your face, will you get it? So like a lot of things about the coronavirus, this is something we don't really have a solid answer on yet. There is a dog in Hong Kong being held in quarantine right now as vets are trying to figure out whether or not he may have gotten the virus. But for now, the World Health Organization is saying that there's no evidence that dogs and cats can infect um, humans with the virus. By far, the most common way it's transmitted is through coughs and sneezes. So the best way to protect yourself is to wash your hands to listen to your parents, and of course, to not touch your face. If you want to tell us how the pandemic is affecting you and your area, use the voice memo app on your phone, or any other sound recording app for that matter, and send it to us at don'ttouchyourface at foreignpolicy.com. You can also send in your questions that way too. That's it for today's edition of Don't Touch Your Face. I'm Amy McKinnon. I'm James Palmer. Our show is produced by Darcy Palder and Dan Haverty and edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please stay out of the pub. And don't touch your face. <laughs>